0: Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustleds, John Lamoureux. Alright, this week we are talking to Chris Barron, frontman for The Spin Doctors. Chris is a total charmer. Such a nice, honest, down-to-earth guy. I love him. Uh, Now, as everyone pretty much knows, The Spin Doctors come out huge. Pocketful of Kryptonite, their debut album comes out in 91. It doesn't really hit big until 92. But it goes on to sell millions of copies. Two Princes, Little Miss Can't Be Wrong... This song right here, Jimmy Olsen's Blues, was also a hit, but it didn't come up in our conversation, so I want to make sure I played it here for everybody to, to remember. Uh, then the follow-up comes out a couple years later, turn it upside down, and it falls flat, unfortunately. And they never quite regain you know, that level of, of fame that they had there with the debut. But they've continued to make music over the years. Um, in fact, Chris has also put out some solo albums. Last year, he put out an album called Angels and one arm Jugglers. That's a lot of fun. And so uh, he's very open and honest about all of this. Now, one of the main reasons that we're talking is because on November 8th, the Spin Doctors, the original band, is getting together for a 30th anniversary show in New York City. So if you're in the area or want to be in the area, you should check it out. We get he, we discuss all the details in this conversation. Obviously, you can also go to their website for that as well. But anyway, I thought it would be really interesting to hear Chris's perspective on the ups and downs of his career. I mean, I say that that's what we normally cover on here. But who's experienced <laughs> higher highs and lower lows? You know. Um, so anyway, he was a super nice guy. I liked him a lot. I think you will too. He lives in New York City, but when we talked, he was in San Diego. I often kick these things off with a little story or anecdote about how I discovered the band I'm talking to, and uh, you guys was a very uh, it was a very specific memory I'll never forget. So I I grew up Mormon, and when I was uh, in my oh, late wow. yeah when I and when I was in my late teens I went on one of those Mormon missions you know, uh-huh. and you see the guys on their bikes with the ties and everything like that. I was one of those guys, and uh, I was
1: can, I just pause, can, I, can we pause right here? Yeah, and like you know when you do what when you're a musician and you've had some songs that are kind of in the zeitgeist a little bit, a lot of times, you know, people tell you like how they discovered your band. Uh So, I mean, I've heard stories of how people discovered my band, like, you know, I don't know, maybe like a thousand of them. Uh And none of them has ever started out with, (laughs) I was a Mormon. So sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, that's good. I just couldn't, I couldn't let you keep going without putting that. Okay. So, so, (laughs) Go on. Okay, I'm glad. You've got my
0: full attention. Cool, cool. Cool. Okay, so during those two years that that anyone goes on a mission, you can't listen to secular music. And um, I was in a mall in Muskegon, Michigan... And I uh, was, I just, I can't help myself sometimes. So sometimes I would go into record stores, even though I couldn't buy anything or technically listen to anything, just to feel, you know, those feelings again. And I remember talking, the I guy thought... behind the counter was like, what, what are you, who are you guys? Why are you here? What are you, why are you wearing those tags and everything? And I explained the situation and I say, um, you know, we can't listen to music for two years. So this is the summer of 1992, And I say, what's, (laughs) you know, what's really hot right now? What's, what's blowing up? What should I know about? He said, oh, the thing, the hot thing right now is this album right here. It's this new band called the Spin Doctors. And I really think this is going to get big. Now you guys, you know, that album came out in 91, but didn't really do anything for a while. And so I uh, I filed that story away. And so when I got home from my mission two years later, it was like, okay, I, guys, the spin doctors. Now, even though I wasn't allowed to listen to music, I would hear Two Princes by osmosis everywhere I went. You know, it'd be on in a uh. restaurant, it'd be on in someone's car, it would be, you'd have the TV right, on yeah. in the background or whatever. And um, so anyway, it was omnipresent there for a while. And then when I got home from my mission in 1994, my first job was working in a CD store. And that was right when uh, Upside Down came out. And I remember that being on right, the yeah. end rack and everything like that. And then I remember it not, you know, blowing up like the first one had. So your whole, the whole like, you know, the the nothing to everything back to sort of nothing again, crux of your career happened in these two years while I was uh, not really <laughs> allowed to listen to music anymore. <laughs> so, anyway, you've always had... so. There's been this like, interesting you know, nugget of relating to the Spin Doctors floating around in my brain for however many years that is. That's yeah. really funny. Yeah.
1: That's really funny. I've never had anybody be like, yeah, I, um, you know, I kind of got into your band during a time when I couldn't listen to music, and I never listened to your band, but I was sort of <laughs> into your band anyway.
0: <laughs> well, when I got home, I played catch-up on all the music I couldn't listen to while I was away. But I—that's uh, yeah. what I mean. Like I filed that. Oh, this this is the band you need to know. But yeah, was it? It's kind of a you know. I had you guys in mind. I carried that memory around for two years. The whole point of me telling you all of that was uh-huh. to introduce my first question, which is that I was I was really curious how you guys were feeling when you've worked so hard on this first album, Pocketful of Kryptonite comes out, and it basically sits there for. You know, eight months or something like that before it really starts to take hold. Are you just so glad to be a professional musician that you don't even notice or care, or are you see uh, sitting back there like we got some good stuff here and no one is noticing?
1: Yeah, there was a lot going on. I mean, there was definitely a certain amount of like you know the band. The band, our initial objective, our our our, our spoken objective was to. Be professional musicians and not have to have another job, hmm. but of course, you know we were very much open to things going further than that, you know, having songs on the radio and and, and being successful and touring all over the world and we you know but I mean we were having some fun traveling around the country and touring and and stuff but we were really very frustrated with the record company. We, we'd sort of been told we were going to get a big push and we really didn't. And, uh, meanwhile, Pearl Jam, we'd pull into a town and it would be like, back then you had the little, like local rag, like the mm-hmm. local paper mm-hmm. that had all the stuff that was going on. It'd be like a full page ad for Pearl Jam's record and a full page ad for Pearl Jam's gig. And it would be like nothing about us. Yeah. And, you know, the, the record company really wasn't spending any money. So there was a level of frustration because we knew we had a really good record. And we were also, you know, like a dynamite live act. And we just knew that we weren't getting um, any real promotion from from the company. But eventually, um, a couple things happened at the record company. I, I recently found out that, I hope she doesn't mind me mentioning her by name, but Laura Curtin, who was like, I had a radio promotion eventually had a drinking contest with some of the upper brass of, um, at Epic and <clears throat> was like, you guys, you're nuts. You've got to push the spin doctors. And they were like, meh. And she was like, I'll tell you what, we're going to do shots of tequila. And whoever can do the most shots of tequila gets to decide what happens with the spin doctors. Can you believe and it? she drank like seven, she drank like 17 shots of tequila and um just drank everybody else under the table and was no like, we're going to push the spin doctors. And that was part of it.
0: Can you believe, I mean, Chris, um, so pause yeah. for a second. I mean, your entire, the trajectory of the rest of your life lies in the hands of Laura having more shots than the other guys.
1: Yeah, Laura, Laura Curtin like drank 17 shots of tequila. Who's to say if that was absolutely, I mean, right. the, the, the deciding factor. Um, but yeah, isn't that funny? I mean, yeah. I, I was astounded when I was told that story. There was yeah. There's a couple of things that went on. They were kind of instrumental. There was, like, there was a guy named Jim McGuinn who was like the program director at um, a station called WEQX in mm-hmm. um, Albany, New York, or, or maybe it was Southern Vermont. I can't remember, but I remember Jim. I've known Jim for a long time. and He at one point wrote a very impassioned uh, letter to uh, Epic, and that helped a lot too.
2: Mm-hmm. He wrote
1: this letter. It was like, you guys have one of the best Fans in the country on your roster, you're not doing anything for them. And he he had been to remember the record Octung Baby, the of U2 record. Yeah, he'd been at a, a promo at a at a radio station at a at a record store where they were doing like a, a release for Octung Baby, and more people were buying Pocketful of Kryptonite during the big U2 um, promotion. <laughs> and then they used Little Miss Can't Be Wrong for like a commercial for a local, like, pizza and sandwich shop. shop. People were calling and requesting commercial. No way. Yeah, and then you know the other thing he put in the letter was just that he'd been at a show of ours at a place called Bogarts in um, in Albany. It was like twenty below, and it was it had snowed like a foot, and there were people just like you know there was a line around the block to to see the band. Wow. In like you know twenty below and a foot of snow, and and he just wrote this letter, and I think that helped a lot. Hmm. You know, it's like. And then we just stayed out on the road and we did the same thing we'd done in the Northeast, which is like just worked our butts off, played our guts out every night. And we'd kind of worked up a critical, you know, tipping point kind of following as well. So,
0: okay. So it was um, a matter of having like, it was a matter of having some champions within the label or whatever sort of pushing for you. It wasn't necessarily, I didn't know if like, you know, so I married an axe murderer. Starts to take off, or there's some groundswell of. You mentioned some of these things, like this big show and the commercial and things like that. Other outside forces are forcing the hands of the decision makers there, saying you need to put a little bit more muscle behind the spin doctors. It'll pay off.
1: Yeah, I mean, and those things don't happen unless you have something that's kind of undeniable.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah. Nobody
1: really like you don't get those if you're sort of if the act is sort of tepid and the record is okay. Mm-hmm you don't get those kinds of champions, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, there's a certain amount of like, um, and we were taking no for an answer. They wanted us to come after like a year, they wanted us to come back and make another record. Mm-hmm. And we were like, no, we're going to stay out on the road and we're going to keep working this record, yeah. which I think, I think that sort of impressed them Good. too. I think they were okay. like, wow, these guys are tenacious.
0: Was there a tipping point when you started to notice suddenly it had gone from this album, you know, not really connecting or sparking to suddenly, whoa, now there's, you know, twice as many people at our shows or we were hearing it on the radio or my royalty check just got bigger. What, what was the, was there well, you a, a flashpoint?
1: There's yeah, there's a couple of things along okay. those lines. I mean, there's like, basically that letter happened and um, our manager was like, okay, we've got, we got Sony's attention. You know, we got Epic. Epic mm-hmm. was a subsidiary of Sony. Mm-hmm. From the big, you could feel the big Sony machine turn on, and all of a sudden it was like, you know, they were going to that for us, and we were getting all these like MTV appearances mm-hmm. and VH1 appearances, and we ended up on Saturday Night Live, and like that was one of those moments where it's like, oh man, I have arrived. Like um, at the party afterwards, I look across the room and. Dan Aykroyd is, uh, <laughs> you know, at this party. I'm like, Oh my God, I gotta go talk to Dan Aykroyd, you know, wow. not just, not just cause of the SNL thing, but, but also because of the blues brothers, which is a
2: yeah. huge
1: like, seminal movie in my life. That movie is genius. Cause it really like collates all of those like seminal influences. Like even just like the, the skip James, like reference, like Skip James isn't even in it, but,
3: but, you know, right. Johnny
1: Lee Hooker, it's like everything from yeah. Johnny Lee Hooker, you know, and Cab Calloway oh yeah, to like Aretha Franklin and, uh, and Ray Charles and anyway, so I had to talk to him. So I'm thinking, okay, well, what's my like entree? What's my, you know, point <laughs> d'appui, my point of departure with him. right? And I'm like, oh, he's a harmonica player and you know, he'll know my friend John Popper Mm-hmm. So I'm like, great. I'll walk up to him and I'll start talking about John Popper. So I walk up to Dan Aykroyd and I'm like, hi, uh, Mr. Aykroyd. He's like, <laughs> call me down.
2: <laughs>
1: okay, Dan, you know. Um, my name is Chris Barron. I'm the lead singer of the Spindockers. And he goes, I know. And then my brain exploded because I was like, oh, I had this whole like entree with him. And Dan Aykroyd knows who I am. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. So that
1: was huge. But then there was like, there was another moment you know, things were happening. We're going all over the place. We're playing bigger and bigger places. The song is on the radio now, mm-hmm. but I'm still kind of broke, you know? So yeah. yeah. I, I go to an ATM machine. I was on the West coast. I think that was in the Northwest. It was in like Portland or something. And, you know, I'm used to having like my balance be like $200 <laughs> or $400 or something like that, you know? Right. And like my balance is like 1500 bucks. <laughs> yes. I'm like, Holy fuck. You know, bank errors, but I'm like, I'm not going to say anything. So, you know, I like, I go back the next day cause I'm like, I wonder if I still have that 1500 uh-huh. bucks. It's like, it's like 3,500 bucks.
2: Oh man.
1: What the fuck? And then I, I'm like, well shit. And I go back like a day or two later and it's like 5,500 bucks and I'm like, whoa, what the fuck? And then like, I go back, I'm like, the bank is going berserk and giving me all this money. And, um, and then I go back the next day and it's like $50,000 in my my ATM account. (laughs) And I like called up our manager. I was like, what's going on? He's like, you're getting paid, dude. (laughs) And, um, you know, and that was like the only bank account I had. So I had to open up like other bank accounts, you know, (laughs) like I'd open up big boy bank account.
0: Yeah. Right. Right. Oh, that's the best. No one's told a story like that before. That is great. (laughs) That's exactly the kind of thing I want to know, you know? When you're yeah. out there on the road, are you uh headlining these shows? Are you playing are you opening for I don't know who, cake or something like that? Who what what's your tour? No, we tour
1: like? um didn't do a lot of opening gigs. We opened for the blues traveler.
0: Yeah.
1: Um we did a lot of sort of shows with those guys where it was like, you know, we went on first and then and like we would do like a a big like segue with them. Like mm-hmm. we'd be playing and then they would like come out one by one and all eight of us would be on stage uh, okay. and then one by one we would like walk off stage mm-hmm. and then, then the blues traveler would like just continue with their set because so we were like pals with them. Mm-hmm. We didn't do a lot of like opening gigs. We, we sort of went with the police, you know, the police never opened. They were always mm-hmm. like a headliner. Okay. But we kind of went with that plan. We were like, just, we wanted to be a headliner. So we mostly just headlined. We didn't mm-hmm. like go out and be like an opening act. we we'd sort of, um, just worked our way up to the ranks as a headliner mm-hmm. and we did eventually open up for the Rolling Stones which oh, amazing. you know you get offered that of course you're gonna do yeah,
0: it yeah yeah Wow good for you I'm curious about the sound of the sound of the spin doctors because uh, very early on a couple of years ago I interviewed Christopher Thorne from blind melon and I was uh, asked him something very similar which is that you know you guys are your album comes out in 91 the 80s have just happened and the 80s are known for, you know, synthesizers and new wave and sax solos and stuff like that. And that's not what you guys were about. You were this like, it's like the 80s had never happened. And you you lifted off from, you know, the Allman Brothers or something like that. Is that what was going on with you? Is that what sort of helped form your sound? Were you just not interested in the hallmarks of 80s production? You went back deeper than that?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know during the eighties there were still a lot of really great rock bands around, mm-hmm. you know, like Foreigner, there you go. Bad yeah. Company. And like the seventies were still kind of and there was and there was also like a lot of like what I call perfect rock, like um mm. Boston. You know, there was there was a lot of like there were a lot of really great rock bands in the eighties, still yeah. like going strong. Yeah. Um and like uh, uh Blue Blue Oyster cult mm-hmm. and You know, but yeah, I was always super into, like, gut bucket blues. I was Mm -hmm. always into, like, as soon as I discovered the blues, I was friends with John Popper in high school. Mm -hmm. So, like, 14, 15 years old, I was like, John, you play, like, blues, right? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, and rock and roll comes from the blues. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, so, show me the blues. Like, what are the blues all about? And he was like, okay, well... You know, you got Jimi Hendrix, who I knew. Mm -hmm. And he was like, this is... He sort of took me back in time. He's like, this is Jimi Hendrix. He's like playing like blues, but it's a modernized kind of version of it. And then he took me back through like, you know, mostly through like harp players, like Mm. Sugar Blue, and then like played me like the Blues Brothers, but like their record. I'd seen the movie, but I didn't know like their record. And James Cotton And I was like, okay, cool. Mm -hmm. So I did what I did multiple times with various different genres of music. You know, I heard about a genre of music. Somebody showed me, you know, gave me like a cursory kind of like course in that music. And then I went to, I grew up in Princeton, New Jersey, and we had one of the seminal vinyl record stores in the country. For the Princeton Record Exchange, it's still there. It's one of the only like, you know, vinyl, um, you know, vintage vinyl emporiums that's yeah. still around. So I did what I did innumerable times, which is you know, I'm like, okay, now I'm going to check out the blues, mm-hmm. and I walk into the Princeton Record Exchange with my allowance, which is like you know, four dollars <laughs> right. fifty and I and I buy like 99 cent blues records. So yeah. I don't, I don't go in there and buy like, you know, like the fancy, nice blues records. I go uh-huh. in there and I'm like in underneath the bins on the floor are boxes of like 99 cent blues records. So I bought all these, like I bought like Clarence, Gatemouth Brown and mm. these funky, funky records. And one of them was a compilation called um, Memphis blues again, volume four, nothing to do with the, Dylan song
2: okay. and it was
1: all these like all of these like just gut bucket field recordings of these random you know Mississippi um, musicians presumably like recorded in their own homes hmm. um, and I never heard of any of these people again and um, I fucking flipped over this shit yeah. it was all yeah it was all like mostly it was like just guitar and vocal or guitar and harmonica and vocal It was one like piano vocal song by a woman. The only person I ever heard of again was a woman named Van Hunt, Mm. who was like a sort of a, you know, a barrel house. Yeah. Like Belter. She sang a song called Jelly Selling Woman that my brother flipped out over. I had a brother who was like two years younger than me. So he was, you know, I was like, at this point, I'm like 14. My brother's like 12. And he flipped out over this Jelly Selling Woman song. Every morning, like we would listen to records while we were getting ready for school. And I. Have to play in that song like over mm-hmm. and over again, mm-hmm. um, but I played that record for John, and he was like, "Oh, that's the Gut Bucket Blues," and he wasn't interested in that stuff at all. Oh, really? Um, but huh. I was no, okay. because John was trying to play the harmonica, um, like Jimi Hendrix, yeah, which is to say, sense. in John's mind, the harmonica had been treated like like a horn,
2: mm-hmm. like
1: a horn section, you yeah. know. He was like he, he'd always be like up until a certain point, up until like sugar blue, guys were playing like on the harmonica, they were playing Ray La Do da Skrilla mm-hmm. Do da, and he's like, I don't wanna play do Duda, I wanna play long lines. So he was into Mozart and like Hendrix and, and even even like horn players like like John Coltrane mm. and he was interested in playing long phrases and long solos on the harmonica you know, he didn't like a lot of those crusty old guys. Mm -hmm. Me, I like knew a little bit of music theory. I loved that stuff because all of a sudden, you know, I'd been listening to like, yes. and early Genesis. Oh, Jethro Tull. Yeah. And Genesis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so like none of that stuff was really stuff that I could play.
2: Mm -hmm. And I was
1: listening to like Simon and Garfunkel, but the picking was really complicated on that stuff. And this was like, I kind of knew chord progressions. I knew the concept of chord progressions. And I knew the concept of a 12-bar blues because I'd kind of gotten that from John. So now all of a sudden, here was like music that I could follow. Mm -hmm. The guitar playing was really rudimentary. It wasn't... I couldn't even play the stuff these guys were playing at that point. But I could kind of follow and see what they were doing a little bit. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, here was like a music that wasn't about like technical elaboration on an instrument. This was music that was about, um, about emotional content mm. and, um, and making the audience like care. Yeah. And all of a sudden I was like, Oh, that I can do. Yeah. Like I can't play aqualung. I can't be like, right. take out an electric be Like, <laughs> right. you know? uh-huh. um, but, but I can like, I can bang out rudimentary chords and come up with like lyrics and sing my guts out and um and that opened up the whole thing to me and then right around that time I was taking guitar lessons and my guitar teacher taught me like a Harry Belafonte song Mm. and a Mm -hmm. Fleetwood Mac song and Mm -hmm. you know a Simon and Garfunkel song you know rudimentary versions and I took a chord from like each of those and kind of put them in my own order he came in for the next thing and I was like playing these chords and I didn't even know if he was going to be mad at me. I didn't even know if he was going to be like, stop fucking around and play the shit I told you to play. <laughs> right, right. You know, But he was yeah. like, he was like, looked at my little chord progression. And he was like, oh, that's cool. You know, you take some chords you like and you just kind of play them for a while. And then, you know, after a while you start singing like doo-da-doo-da-doo, da-da-da-da-da. Uh-huh. And if you do that long enough, it turns into lyrics and uh, you write those down in a notebook with the chords and that's how you write songs. That's it. And I was like, what? Yeah. Are you kidding me?
0: Didn't you write so Two Princes at learned? like 17 or 19 or something like that? I was 19, yeah. I was 19. 19
1: when I wrote Two Princes.
3: Yeah, one, two, princess knew before you. That's what I said now. Princess, princess who adore you just got. I started,
1: you know, I started writing songs when I was like 14, but that—that that was it for me. I was like, yeah. "Wait a minute, you're—you're you're kidding me."
2: Yeah. And
1: what about the squiggly lines and stuff? And he was like, "What? Like reading music?" And I was like, "Yeah." It's like you think Bob Dylan and 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 like John Lennon can read music? And I was like. Of course they can. He was like no they can't. That's how they write songs. And I was like Are you kidding me. And that was it, you know.
0: Yeah. That freed your mind from the, you know, the confines well, yeah, you thought and, there were.
1: It, yeah, it just opened up the whole thing to me. Yeah. Yeah, and then from then on I was okay. just like writing my brain Okay. Down. Cool. And then and then I came at it I came at it all from like a creative writing standpoint.
0: Interesting. Okay. Um, tell me about the best part of the height of Spin Doctor's success? What, when you look back, um, or while it was even happening, if it's Dan Aykroyd across the room, if it's I don't know what, tell me what the, the memory you take with you most fondly from that period. Tell me what it is.
1: I mean, if you put a gun to my head and you're like, what is the single greatest memory, you know, rock and roll memory of your yeah. life, I'd have to say I'd have to say that, like, on my deathbed, I'm going to think about this story. Like, Mm -hmm. we're opening up for the Rolling Stones. I had been at the Sunset Marquee, and I ran into one of the guys who played guitar with um, the Black Crows. I can't remember who it was. Interesting. I feel bad that I can't remember who it was. But he was like, oh, my God, you're opening for the Stones. All right, here's the lowdown. And he was like, you know, every night, Keith Richards and Ron Wood play snooker. Oh, um, really? Yeah, so the, it was the Voodoo Lounge store. So there was like when you get into the Voodoo Lounge, like find the snooker table. And eventually Ron Wood and Keith Richards will they play snooker every night. So mm-hmm. they'll come out. They're super friendly and if they ask you like if you want a drink, ask for Guinness. Mm. They don't drink Guinness. They drink vodka and orange, but they love people who drink Guinness. They'll be so psyched if you ask for a Guinness. That's so I was like, okay. So the whole story how we ended up getting into the Voodoo Lounge, because you don't automatically get back
2: there. Mm. That's
1: another okay. story. But So I get this credential to get back into the Voodoo Lounge, and I'm back there. And the Voodoo Lounge is like decorated like, New Orleans Bordello mm. meets mm-hmm. like meet, meets like the Day of the Dead in Mexico. <laughs> and like, and, you know, there's like a, there's like a velvet tasseled, like, you know, lamp that I'm sort of standing, you know, a few feet away from and, and back in the shadows. And, you know, there's like red and black velvet everywhere. And this huge mm-hmm. snooker table and out come... Ron Wood and Keith mm. Richards and they start playing Snooker. Wow. So I'm just like, I'm like a fucking, that's it. I'm ready to like yeah. die and go to heaven right yeah. there. I'm like watching you know, these two guys like play yeah. Snooker and I'm good to go. So Ron Wood turns around and he's like, oh, mate, Chris, spin doctors, how you going, mate? And I'm like, oh, great. And he's like, He's like, would you like a drink or something? And I'm like, well, Guinness would be great. They said, Keith, Keith, Chris wants a Guinness. And Keith's like, Do you want a Guinness? And I'm like, ah, sure. And they're like, all right, come on. And they take me, you know, like the whole, the whole backstage is like sanctums within sanctums. You, know, uh-huh. it's like you have to have like different, um, you know, uh, uh,
2: credentials to Yeah, yeah. get
1: further and further back. So. You know, next to the Voodoo Lounge is the tuning room, oh. which is like the next Sanctum in. Uh-huh. So they take me back into the tuning room where I never saw anybody tune anything except a vodka and orange. Mm-hmm. And um, there's like two, five million dollars worth of like vintage guitars oh, and vintage amplifiers goodness. back there. Yeah. And so we hang out back there and basically like for the rest of the tour, a lot of nights I would end up back there hanging out with, with Mick and or Keith Richards. I must've been like super Crazy. comfortable cause I'm like sitting on the floor really, and talking, talking to Keith. I'm sitting on the floor like a little kid uh-huh. looking up at Keith. We're talking about like him going to like Sun Studios and Muddy Waters, like oh, man. painting the walls there. And, you know, he's talking about what a sweet guy Muddy Waters was and, um, you know, uh, Chuck Berry and kind of what a difficult time he had working with Chuck yeah, Berry and how yeah. like he was such a huge hero of his and, uh, but it was really like tough working with them.
0: That's incredible. And like, He's just, and you're part of the I'm
1: like crew. those guys. Yeah. And I'm There's no, like Chris isn't good enough me. to
0: be here. You're there. You're sharing. The no, 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 yeah.
1: no. We're just shooting the shit, just yeah. shooting the shit. Like just talking about, and I'm asking him like stuff, but you know, like just like, uh, you know, it, it had been amazing. I watched them play a bunch of times. So it's just soaking in, it was like uh, like a graduate school workshop mm-hmm. in rock and roll, mm-hmm. and those guys are so cool. Yeah. Like, I finally figured out how to describe how cool they are. The way I, the what I would say is like they're the word "cool" was invented to describe them. <laughs> yes. You know, yeah, they're not cool. Cool is them.
0: Yeah,
2: they created and, um,
1: them. Yeah, and okay. so. And they're silly. They're really, really silly. Good. Like like Keith Richards like grabbing Charlie Watts around the shoulders and being like, oh, you horrible little man. And sort of Monty (laughs) Python kind of sense of humor. And so I'm just like, I'm sitting on the floor, and I'm looking up at him, and I'm like, you guys are just like having a really good time. Yeah. And he's like, why else would you do it, man? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, I know how much money he's making. Like that dude is making, he's making like, you know, $25 million on this tour. Yeah. You know, but yeah. I know, I know when, when he says that, I know he really means like, why else would you do it? Like, right. this is fun. And I fucking love this. He's like, you know, playing with a drummer like Charlie Watts. I was like, you know, in that moment, I just had this like need to testify to this sure. guy, you know, I look up at him and I'm like, I want to do this for the rest of my life yeah. and Keith Richards, like the freaking Pope of rock and roll is standing over me, standing above me. I'm sitting on the floor. He holds forth his hand in this like, you know, gesture of benediction. Yeah. And he goes, you will. He goes, you will, man. You will. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow. Okay. So I got that going. I yes. got that going for me, so that's like an, an anointing. Says I'm going to do this for the rest of my life.
0: That's crazy.
1: Yeah, he anointed me. I was anointed by the Pope of Rock and Roll. That
0: is crazy. At least to
1: the to the to yeah. the tune of like doing this for the rest of my life. Sure. So that's like my that's that's probably like my gun to my okay. head. I love it. You know, like Great. favorite memory.
0: Good. Okay, I love that story. Now let's talk about the difficult follow-up. Turn it upside down. Uh, Ooh. Things went upside down, didn't they? Why and how did you feel? Were you guys not ready to make a second album? Did you believe in that album, but the the label had moved on, or the record buying public had moved on? How are you feeling when you're like, hey, we we were just here, we just had a bunch of hits and sold <laughs> three million copies. Where'd everybody go? You know.
1: You know, I think I think a lot of a lot of things went wrong with that record. Um, we. It's a little known fact that we went down to uh, Memphis. First of all, um we we like I said we had to work that album basically twice, mm-hmm. you know. Mm. We went out and we worked an album for about the amount of time that that an act usually works an album. And then then the record company kicked in. Right. Yeah. So then we sort of, we almost worked it three times. So then we work it again with the, with the album being pushed and it takes off. And then we work it again, like, because it's, because it was so big, you know, we were like striking while the iron is hot. So mm-hmm. we, we had done all of the work that we had done to get signed and to get a record deal and to make a, our first record, then we kind of like worked to the record and then worked it and then worked it again yeah. so by the time at this point I'm twenty five or twenty six and I had been just gigging every night yeah since I was like twenty years old and um, we were all just insanely burnt out Mm -hmm. and instead of instead of coming home and taking a couple months off um, we just went right back in the studio and um, like I was just super burned out so we go down Mm -hmm. to Memphis with uh, the great Jim Dickinson amazing Mm -hmm. producer Mm -hmm. and we, we make this record in Arden Studios and honestly, like I haven't heard that version of the record. Cause what happened is we came, we sent that back to the record label and they were like, no way. Really? But wow. yes. And I don't think they said no, because it wasn't a good record. I think they said no, because it was a fucking hellacious oh. record. Like really? we, we were like fresh off the road. So we were yeah. super tight as a band. We we're super burned out, but there was like, crazy like aggression and um i you know i i I haven't heard that version of the record um since back then so but i have a sneaking suspicion that we should have put out that version
0: other other people
1: have for that version of the record and they're like it's fucking brilliant yeah really
0: so that one was better yeah than the one that came out
1: so there's a lost yeah there's a lost version of turning up now, now were they the same songs never came
0: out? recorded differently or yep.
1: were they completely different songs? It
0: was okay.
1: It was mostly the same songs. I don't know if Cleopatra's Cat was on that. Okay. Version um but yeah, we were we were uh, they recorded we made um the second version of that record we made up in New York at the power station. Mm. These were made at Arden Studios in okay. um, in uh, In Memphis, Um, so two like two. I mean, probably technically, you know, the power station is probably like it's definitely a more iconic. Mm -hmm. You know, it's Mm -hmm. probably a better studio, but I mean, Arden, tons of tons of big records have been made at Arden, and that's where your heart was at
0: anyway. You know, you were more of like a Memphis focused or Memphis type band, I guess, at that point.
1: Well, we'd recorded at uh, we'd recorded, we did Pocketful of Kryptonite in New York. Who, oh. A lot of it we did at um, at the power station.
2: Mm.
1: Um, so we'd recorded there before, but so that was that's number one.
2: Mm. First
1: of all, you know, we we redid the record, and we probably shouldn't have redone it. Um, there's a there's like a secret version, lost mm. version of that record out there somewhere wow. that I would love to hear. Yeah, because I'd be really interested. So. There's that, um, again, like to go back to the fact that the band was super burned out. Mm-hmm. Um, we were at each other's throats. This band, um, at this point in our careers, you know, we've we've been working closely together for 30 years. Mm. But we're not like our friends, the Blues Traveler. Blues Traveler, those guys went to high school together and they are friends. Mm. Um, they formed a band, not just because they were friends, but in part because they were friends. Yeah, yeah, okay. Spin Doctors, we weren't friends. We didn't start out as friends. We were like each one of the best guys at what we did Mm. around. Mm. So we formed because everybody was a badass.
2: Very different dynamic.
1: Eric kind of started the band off. You know, Eric, Eric and I always had like, I mean, we almost got in a fist fight one of the first times we worked together once we sort of got back together, you know, we always had a warm regard for each other. Uh, but again, you know, Eric saw me playing around New York and was like, I want to put a band together. Mm. That guy is probably like the best natural front man around.
2: Wow. I'm going
1: to okay. like, I'm going to like, up. so he approached me. It was like, I got a gig. Let's do. Something. Yeah. He ended up hearing um, Aaron Comis, Um. uh playing practicing drums in a practice room at uh, the New School Jazz Conservatory, where we were all going, Mm -hmm. and asked Aaron to join the band. And then Aaron knew Mark from other bands that he was in. It was like, you know, Mark would be great in this band, but he's kind of an asshole. I don't think you guys would like him. (laughs) And um, eventually we were like, well, let's just play with him. And, you know, I mean, eight bars playing together. We knew that that was a combo. So. Um, now after 30 years, we know each other really well. Our kids know each other, Sure, you know, it's like, uh, you know, our spouses and it's like, you know, we've all been through this long thing. And also, you know, we have sort of worked our shit out because
0: Good. you would
1: hope you know, after thirty we, years. yeah, yeah, after 30 years. And also because like everybody's sort of like, because we didn't really start out as friends. We're all kind of like fuck you. Mm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. here's what I think of you. <laughs> right, right. And there's also no like a great thing. There's a great thing in the band where like we don't. You can just be whoever the hell you want to be. Yeah. Like you know, it's like hey, you want to hang out? No, I'm tired of you. Like, <laughs> I, can't, I don't want to look at your face anymore. I'm gonna go to my room That's and um, stick a pencil in my eye. Right,
0: right. That okay.
2: sounds
1: like more fun than than spending more time with you. Um, yeah.
0: It probably so, helps that you guys sure. haven't been, uh, I mean, you you put out albums more sporadically, I think, and tour sporadically. It's not a constant, you know, every year we're back out on the road like the Dave Matthews Band or something like that. Maybe that helps. That sort of separation allows for the moments when you come back together to be more synonymous and more harmonious, maybe?
1: Possibly. Um, I mean, we're all just really strange guys with very strong personalities and very different personalities. Each guy in the band is just so distinct and so different. Um, You know, uh, and that's why I think, that's why I think our chemistry musically is so strong. And and what really keeps us together is that chemistry. You know, each one of us values, values, the other guys
2: mm-hmm.
1: because you know there's a lot of people who are amazing players who never end up finding an ensemble that they can play with.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um that has the kind of chemistry that the spin doctors have. Yeah. And when we start playing music, it's like um it's as a unit we are just super expressive and yeah. super reactive. To each other and yeah. able to respond in this very spontaneous kind of way,
2: Good. even
1: in even in songs that we play you know seemingly the same way every time, there's um, a lot of like musical interaction yeah inside of the band because just because we have this amazing chemistry, and we sure just really hear each other
0: that's very clear, and I wanted to ask you about that specifically because one of the knocks, especially of that particular album was that it was very jammy, you know, like songs kind of stretched out maybe. And I'm telling you what I've read. I'm not telling you what I think. But that songs were sort of stretching out as jams longer than was necessary. And I wondered if, and you would, I mean, you would, I'm not a musician, so I don't know, was the jamming aspect, and maybe whether that's in this album or any other album, is the jamming, especially for, for this album, is that something that you guys... Really dig about it, like we like this, or is jamming ever a a replacement for a song idea? you know we jam because no, we're not exactly case, no. sure what to do no no here. No. No.
1: Okay. no in our in our case, no, in our case, I think like of all of the jam bands, yeah, I actually think we are the band that succeeded in uh, oh, not that the other ones haven't succeeded, but I think we've consistently um always had very strong song mm-hmm. ideas. And and it's always been our, you know, intention um not to replace good songs with jamming. We've always seen the songs as like vehicles for improvisation, yeah, but also know. but also the songs have to be good songs. I and mean, yeah. that's my whole songwriting is like my whole, you know, raison d'etre you know it's mm-hmm, my whole mm-hmm. reason for being musically like i i um i get crazy when we try and work on material mm-hmm. that isn't up to a certain standard it's like my worst nightmare playing a bad song or a, or a mediocre song
2: yeah i can
1: imagine and um yeah so you know we we came up playing like jazz so you know we've always we've always really Worked hard to have songs that were, hmm. that were very strong, you know, musical ideas, very strong lyric ideas, and very strong just song. Yeah. Ideas so good. You know, I I think I think Pocketful of Kryptonite stands up really well.
2: Yeah. I, oh, it does. I, I'm,
1: I'm very critical of my own stuff. I, I'm I'll be the first person to be like, you know. I'm not sure entirely how successful, you know, an album is, or something like that. But, yeah. but I I feel very strongly that um, that's a very cohesive record, and I think that the improvisations really, um, you know, follow very strong musical yeah, ideas I agree. and very strong musical threads. And um,
0: I actually think you've got to uh, believe in something is also really strong. In fact. Um, in some <laughs> ways, well, I'm going to ask you in a second what that laugh meant. Um, I, in some ways, I wondered if that would have been a better, you know, um, second chapter after Kryptonite, because it was a little, slightly, a little poppier. You know, songs like "She Used to Be yeah, Mine" yeah. was is in keeping yeah. with what I bet your fans and regular people wanted to hear from you in that moment. Going back over your, your catalog to get ready to talk to you, there seems to be sort of a pattern here where the, the an album comes out and it's sort of, it leans a little more pop. And then the follow-up to that one is either jammy or slightly experimental or is a straight up blues album. Have you Are you conscious yeah, yeah. of this, that we like sort of do one poppy and then we do one that's Diff- off the beaten path was that a plan
1: you know i'd like to say i'd like to say yes but but not really uh you know we we um I, the reason i laughed at that is because you know we we made you gotta believe in something with um anthony cryzan after eric left the band mm. and i actually you know i love that record and it occupies this sort of like odd dead space in my career because now that Eric is back in the band, we don't really play any of that material. Mm. Um, Mm. But I've always really loved that, that record. And, um, some of the songs on there, I really love. Um, she used to be mine. I think it's a really great track and, um, uh, where angels fear to tread. And, um, that was a really great moment for me. Um, because we made that record with Danny Korshmar, Mm. who's just a great, great producer. Yeah. And, um, and he didn't take any shit from me Good. and he wouldn't let me bullshit at all. Good. So he just like really, yeah, he really like rode me on that record. And, you know, I would, he'd be like, okay, he'd give me a, a yellow legal pad and he'd be like, okay, write these lyrics down for me. And I'd write them down and he would go through the lyrics and any, anything he didn't like, he would underline. Mm. And I'd either have to rewrite the line or I'd have to sell it to him. I'd have to be like, wait a minute, you know, Mm -hmm. this is a triple entendre. You know, he'd be like, what do you mean? And I'd be like, well, it's this, this, and this. And he'd be like, oh, okay, cool. That can stay in, you know, Mm. or else, you know, he'd be like, but like, like he made me write the last verse of, she used to be mine. I worked on that last verse, that one verse for weeks. Like he just wouldn't let me get away with anything. And I finally, I finally actually, was um, so, like, obsessed with finishing that song that I was dreaming about it one morning mm-hmm. and I finished it, like, mm-hmm. half asleep. I had a notebook in my bed and mm-hmm. I kept, like, waking up and writing a line down and falling asleep and then waking up and writing a line down and finally kind of wrote it in a dream. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but, yeah. Um, well, let me ask you this. Is, this, is you that without... No,
1: it hasn't been, it, has, it oh. hasn't been, like, a conscious, like... Okay. You know, pop jam, pop jam okay. kind of
0: record. Okay. Uh, well, when you made that album, you had to have been acutely aware that your the follow up didn't go like you hoped it would. Does when is your is your uh, plan or your focus in going into? You've got to believe in something. Are you thinking we got to recapture what we had before? We got to get those people back. We got to remind everybody we're still here. Or is it a different kind of freedom where it's like, you know what? The pressure's off us now. We, uh, w- there aren't as many people counting on us for their bottom line. Let's just go do whatever we want to do and see what comes out.
1: We were sort of fighting for the support of the record mm. company
2: mm-hmm.
1: as much as anything. You know, on the first record, the label kind of, you know, like I said, we really had to like fight and fight and fight until they kind of like came through for us. The second record, I think we Cleopatra's put out the wrong first single. We put out Cleopatra's cat first. Yeah.
3: Got his hands on Caesar's bats. The heat was on as you could see. So he found to Mark Anthony. Said my girlfriend's cat is smaller than me. My girlfriend's cat is smaller than me. But to de, le, de, de, de. Said Brutus had an for clothes. He saw them spats. He said I like those. Caesar had no thing to say. He said Jesus Christe Dominea, et tu te. Well, Jesus Christe Dominia et. Today. Where the Senate tried to sympathize. It was this cat they should despise. And for my towel, is whereabouts?
1: That was um, a very strong opinion from our manager at the time. It was like the classic he thought we could sort of stretch the record out longer if we put like a slow burn tune out first.
2: Mm.
1: And um, we weren't getting a great reaction from, from radio and just like a whole lot of hubris behind that decision. I didn't feel super secure about it, but I deferred to him and um, it came out and instead of debuting, like, you know, pretty far up the charts, it didn't have a lot of, Confidence from um, the label and um, and like you know radio, I think if we were coming off of something a bigger hit, it would have gone for it, but
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know we put that record we put that out, and it was we were fucked kind of from the beginning. it came okay. out, it charted at like number twenty three and it never got higher than that, and it kind of fell off the charts and and um you know the label um, we still had a really strong live following at that point in time, but the label their support was kind of waning. And then we our Eric, you know, left the band and then uh we made this you know record with uh with Anthony and yeah I think we're kind of fighting for the get it back. You know, kind of for the support of the label. Mm. We made an amazing record and you know like I don't think the the label was into it. Mm. Like very into it at all from the beginning. Wow. Just from a like you know back then and maybe to some extent still once you weren't, you know, just kicking ass. Yeah. Labels they they just in that point in time they weren't really sticking Yeah. with bands,
0: you I know. If they that.
1: struggled at all.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, so let me ask you this. I mean, you've gone from this massive success um, we talked we touch on sensitively on here some of the business side of of how all this works you know kryptonite sells like three million copies or something like that two princes is still heard all the time today you know could you can you live off that peak of success for the rest of your life or have there been lean times have there been times when maybe you couldn't become be a professional musician you had to do something else or has there always been a pretty steady and I'm not. I'm not trying. I hope this isn't too insensitive, but a steady stream of sort of you know mailbox money. Two princes is going to be used in a commercial or a movie or something, and I'm going to be good for a while.
1: Yeah, I do. I do okay. Okay, I've never had to like do anything but music. Okay, Um, never had to like take another job. Okay, Um, and yeah, you know the royalties kind of continue to roll in, um, and I I have to continue to work. Like I have to, I have to make money as a musician. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I can't just do nothing and and be like set for life. But I, um, I own an apartment in New York. Um, I drive a Subaru. Um, My apartment's like just sort of a regular two bedroom apartment. It's a nice apartment, but it's not like some kind of lavish luxury, Uh you know, crazy apartment. Um, You know, and I, and I, i can like uh go out to dinner if i want to and take a good. vacation, okay, but i don't drive a i don't drive a Ferrari you right. know and i don't have like i don't have like a vacation house in the Riviera or a yacht or anything like that
2: yeah
1: um you know what i mean i have like a, and i and i'm not like i don't have a super lavish you know lifestyle i like to buy a good bottle of wine here sure. and there and uh-huh. go out for a nice dinner yeah um but yeah i'm, I'm okay. Like, I'm I'm set up you're good. To be a professional musician for the rest of my life. Good. You know. Good. That's yeah. it.
0: You deserve it. That's great. Uh I know you're really <laughs> into cats. Do you do you have any kids?
1: <laughs> yeah, I got a daughter who's nineteen. Okay. <laughs> um you know, she's the apple of my eye. Sure. Um and uh and I'm married. Um uh-huh. not to her mom. Okay. I, I was never with my kids' mom. Um uh, but I'm married. Um, to a musical theater actress who is like the most hilarious human being on Good. the planet. How long have you guys been I'm married? I'm actually in San Diego. I've been married. Um, we've been together for 10 years. We've been married. Uh, February will be our sixth okay anniversary.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask, ask you. 30... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I keep cutting you off. No, no, that's okay. Well, I was going to ask you, Are you... you're in San Diego because she's doing some Huey Lewis musical I've never heard of a Huey Lewis musical, but that sounds awesome. What is this?
1: It is awesome. Good. Yeah, she's, there's a new Huey Lewis musical that's like in development right now. They're they're um, they're doing a run at um, the the Old Globe Theater in San Diego, and of course, like my wife is like best friends with Huey Lewis now. So <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> they totally they oh, totally hit it off. Of I want to be best friends Everybody with Huey Lewis.
0: Friend. I would love that. Great. Uh,
1: me too. Everybody yeah. loves my wife. Like everybody's like, everywhere I go, when I go back, people are like, if I bring my wife, people are like, oh, hey, it's good to see you. Uh, where's uh-huh. Lindsay? <laughs> yeah. That's
0: one of those. I know what you mean. That's yeah. great, man. Good for you. You deserve that. Yeah. That's great. Um, now, I want to ask you about yeah, your last thanks. solo album because um, you know, we I feel bad giving all the other albums, the other Spin Doctors albums, Short Shrift, but you know, we've been talking for about an hour. Let's talk about your last solo album. It's kind of a unique sound there's there's even there's like a couple of tracks that sound almost ragtimey and sort of country yeah you know americana it's called angels and one-armed yep. jugglers for anyone who doesn't know sword swallowers
3: and smugglers good old head-a-laid. she must be long gone Once was a looker and a hell of a hoofer and we never stay thirsty for
0: consciously trying to kind of expand your your repertoire in this thing what was the thinking
1: you know i i don't it's funny because i don't think about music in terms of genre oh i mm. i have i see like i see music as like particularly like the music that i play as like along a spectrum mm. from mm. From like rudimentary um you know blues through like ragtime and jazz, like I have to see music as as a spectrum rather than or a continuum from like blues through jazz Got it. and you know with country and all these other things in the middle, so when I'm like writing a song, I'm never like. I'm going to write a little jazz standard Mm. or I'm going to write a heavy metal song. Like I just, for me, a song is sort of a proposition. Mm. I'm like, this might make a good idea for a song. And I, once I solve the riddle of the song, which is to say, once the lyrics all make sense, they all hang together. They all um, refer back to the title in a cohesive way. They're, you know, they hang together in a way that elaborates the central idea of the song. And the music is composed in such a way that it supports that and is diverting and interesting and, and full of, of like interesting ideas. Then I'm like, Oh, I wrote mm. a little jazz yeah. you know Afterwards I'm like,
2: okay.
1: Oh, look, I look what I did, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's, or I wrote something that's kind of like an old Gary Davis blues song. Or, yeah. You know, it's, it, it's, it's, It's funny because when you're a musician, you have tons of conversations with music journalists Mm. and, you know, it's a music journalist's job to categorize Mm. music and organize music, you know, verbally into, into these um, groups so that their readers and their listeners can like make sense of what they're talking about and decide whether they want to go out and, and acquire that music or not. My job is like making music,
2: yeah, yeah, you know,
1: and it's, it's very, very different. So, you know, it's just, I never think about the genre, okay. like just not sense. really something that's much of a concern to me. Although, you know, I'm deeply interested in like the ideas of like blues and jazz and um, you know, they're all, But to me, it's all kind of music. So making this record, I just had tons of tunes lying around. And these were the tunes that kind of like work together best on the record. Good.
0: Okay. You know, you mentioning, I had a question for you and you mentioning music journalists kind of reminded me of it. Um, I'm curious how you handle criticism. Um, Because there are people who love Two Princes and then there's people who never want to hear that song again. You know what I mean? Every, every (laughs) successful artist out there has people who love them and people who despise them. And it's just comes with the territory. And I'm curious how you you personally handle that kind of criticism. Are you somebody who, like an actor would say, I don't read my reviews. I don't care. I don't pay attention. Mm -hmm. Or is it like, yeah, "Yeah, I do take that stuff to heart and uh, it hurts, but I do my best to get it pat through it. What do you do?
1: I used to take it really personally. Um, and I used to wanna like if somebody wrote like a review that I thought was unfair, you know, if somebody yeah. has like if somebody has something to say about something I've done and and it's and it's fair, then fair enough. But if somebody's just like arbitrarily like a jerk and you know that they came into like a review mm-hmm. with a preconceived notion, you know, and they're just like they think it's gonna be funny or they think it's you know, they're being like flippant about your music, then I want to find them and like beat their asses, sure. you know, cause mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm like, this is my life,
2: you know? Yeah.
1: And yeah. I put my heart on the line doing this stuff and, and, uh, and you know, you can go fuck yourself cause right. you, you don't, presumably you don't, you can't even write, you know, yeah. so, you know, go fuck yourself. But, but as I've gotten older, I, I take that stuff more and more with a grain of salt. And like this last record I made, me and Roman, the guy who produced it, we worked every song, every recording, every idea until we played it back on the speakers and it made the hair stand up on our arms. Good. You know? Right on. And we were like, when by the time this record was done, I knew I didn't care what anybody said. Because yeah. I knew I had made exactly the record. So if it came out and it got panned, I would have been like, well, people just didn't, understand it or whatever it Mm -hmm. wasn't what people wanted to hear but it was definitely what i wanted to say um so i mean i think you know my friend jeff cohen is a great writer he always says like if you do what you think is right you know if you're making a record and you you're like every step of the way you do what you think is right and and like maybe you get some advice like i i rarely solicit you know, advice when I'm making a record I've found over the years, like you're making a record, you decide, you know, in this case, like in the case of angels and one arm jugglers, me and Roman were like in the beginning, I said, look, you're the producer. I'm the artist. Mm -hmm. We are the sole arbiters and we have the final say of what happens on this record. It's up to you and me to have the final say. And, um, And, you know, people are going to come in, they're going to hear this, we'll play this song, we'll play this for some people and they'll have things to say, but you and I are going to make the final decision. We're not just going to listen to everybody, particularly like, you know, punters who we play Mm -hmm. stuff for. Mm -hmm. And um, we're certainly not going to ask for people's advice. And um, I've found in my career, those are the best records. When you decide who's, who's making the record, who has the final say the times that I've like played stuff for people while I was making it and been like, what do you think? What should I do? Then I, it was like too many cooks, you know, and yeah. it dilutes the vision. It dilutes the vision of it. Even the title of this record. I had tons of people telling me, um, all my friends were like, you can't call this record angels and one Arm jugglers. <laughs> That's too like, that title is too like, indulgent it's too random like what the fuck are you talking about like you mm-hmm. have to come up with another name and um that was like that I listened to you know I was like shit people really don't like this title right what am I gonna do I don't know I fucking love the title fuck and eventually <laughs> like my wife one morning um we were like sitting around drinking our coffee and she came out of the kitchen and she goes you know I think Angels and One-Armed Jugglers is a cool title and I was like, cool, fine. Good. My wife Done. likes it. <laughs> That's it. Happy wife, happy life. That's right. Now that it's like, this, super well, it's the reviews on this record have been like insanely good. good. I, I, I didn't even get, I didn't get any reviews that were even like lukewarm. Like nice. they, I just, this, this record got really, really strong. Good for you, Chris. That's reviews.
0: great. Good.
1: Um, which turned out great. It made me feel really good. But, like I said, you know, I, I, I made the record that I wanted to make, and good. I think if you do that, my friend Jeff, I was starting to say, my friend Jeff is like, if you do what you think is right, and it doesn't work out, you know that you did what you thought right. was the right thing. That's right. If you take somebody's advice, and you deep down you not you're not sure about it, and you think you maybe should do something else. And it doesn't work out, you're going to eat your heart out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's how it works. Better to go with your own conviction. Um, now, okay. Before we've been talking for a while, you've been so generous. You've been so generous with your time. But we got to talk about this 30th anniversary show. Give me all the details. Yeah, yeah. November 8th in New York. Tell November, me November
1: Thursday, November 8th, New York City. Um, we're playing at um, the Brooklyn Bowl, which is a venue that we played sometimes and really, really great venue. And we know Pete Shapiro, the owner goes back with us to one of the seminal New York clubs, the, the wetlands. He was the owner there. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to um, play like all the, you know, spin favorites that people mm-hmm. love to hear. We're going to spend a couple of days beforehand and put together some deep cuts some stuff that we haven't played in a really long time. And I think it's going to be a really special evening. We're going to do, um, you know, two sets with a little intermission in between. Good. And, um, and like some, well, just a ton of like, I think it's going to be a wonderful night. Like a lot of people from our past are like just coming out of the woodwork, you know, and, and buying tickets from all over the world to come to the show and be there. You know, I think it's going to be a really, Good. a really special night of music.
0: And this is just and like a one-off you, thing, uh, right? You guys don't do these... I don't even know. How many shows a year do you play? Or do you just get together like once every couple of years for a, something like this?
1: No, you know, the, the, the original lineup has been back together, honestly, like since like 2001. Okay. And we've been playing pretty steadily. It's the okay. original guys. Um, and we've been playing most years. We do anywhere from, you know, 10 to 40 gigs. Okay. Um, most years we've done more than 20, you know, most, 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 like all summer long we're out doing um, shows. We do, we do um, what we call fly dates, you know, we like fly out to different places and, and uh, we, we haven't been on like a uh, just like get on a bus and go out and do a tour. We haven't done a tour like that in a long time.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: But it's, it's actually really fun because, you know, all summer long, you know, Thursday I'm getting on a plane and I'm flying out somewhere and then coming home like Sunday or Monday. And I got, you know, I'm at home with my wife and with my kid and, um, um, you know, the next week I'm flying back out again.
0: Good. Okay. That sounds like the ideal situation, right?
1: It actually is really great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... It's, It's really great.
0: That's perfect. Your success, all that hard work has afforded you this life and it sounds pretty right on I mean you could maybe aspire to like you know millions of things and millions of dollars and record sales and all that kind of stuff but it would take it would take more sweat equity than maybe it's worth it at this point you just get to sit back and
1: you know honestly like do your thing my problem with the world today is um, that there's this like corporate focus on like constant Fiscal, like financial growth. Mm-hmm. Every company's got to be growing every year.
0: Yeah, good point.
1: And I don't care about money that yeah. much. Yeah. I, I've had tons of money. I've lost tons of money. I've made more money. You know, mm-hmm. it's way better. I mean, I wake up in the morning and I'm either, I either have a show to get to or like I'm like picking up a guitar. And like working on then and working on something, you know, and that's like, my life is like, my life is just like guitars and airplanes and gigs and songs and notebooks. And I work really hard. I don't, I don't usually talk about that in interviews because nobody really wants to hear about how hard you work. They just want to hear about like the, you know, (laughs) whatever the chicks in the (laughs) limousines you know, the romantic kind of stuff. Sure. But like when I say that I work really hard, I mean that, practice guitar for hours a day i take Mm -hmm. voice lessons i take guitar lessons i sit in airports you know i'm always flying somewhere flights get delayed i fly to the gig the night before so that i'm you know so i wake up in the town and i can't like miss a plane and then miss the gig Mm -hmm. so i have like you know lonely nights in hotels where like i wish i was with my wife i wish i was with my kid i wish i was with my cat um you know i work my ass off and I make a decent I make a decent living and I live comfortably and um but I don't like I don't do dumb shit mm-hmm. you know I don't like I play my own music I don't like wear a tutu yeah. or like you know what I mean or hang yeah. out with people I like, have to hang out with people I hate Yeah, or you know be embarrassed by like the music that I'm making because it's like pandering yeah is some like, you know, yeah. uh, executives idea of what's going to sell so that they have the confidence to put like millions of dollars into promotion for it. And, you know, it's, it's a good, it's a good, like, you know, I think good. about a couple of things, you know, when I was, um, a really young guy, when I was like 20, um, I bought a really cheap flight to, to, uh, Luxembourg. And then I, Mm. hitchhiked and, and took a train down to uh, to Rome. I spent the summer just living off of being a street musician in Rome. Mm-hmm. And there was a guy who had a pizza shop that I knew. I was like, man, you know, you could open your pizza shop during the siesta. You know, in Italy, everybody sleeps in the afternoon.
2: Right.
1: You could open your pizza shop during the siesta, and you'd have the only pizza shop open during the <laughs> siesta. And, like, all the tourists would, like, come... Mm-hmm. And you'd make a lot of money, and he was like, "What would I do with that money? That would be better than going home and making love to my wife."
0: Oh, the perfect answer! And I was
1: like, "I was like, damn, yeah, damn, you know, damn." There's yes. more to life, you know. Americans are so into money, and there's more to life than money. And so, and yeah. then there's another guy, this guy am. Um, I really admire my father's my father's name is ken gross if you're into cars google my dad ken gross he is the foremost authority on automobiles in the world and he's got um if you google ken gross roadster a picture of my dad's 32 um, roadster hot rod will show up and it's gorgeous and the guy my dad designed it and worked on some of it. And the guy who built most of it is a guy named Dave Samard, who's in Massachusetts, who's a brilliant hot rod builder. And um, I was there, this is years ago, when my dad was building this car. Um, I'm well, looking Dave at it was right now while you're building.
0: talking about it, by the way. Yeah,
1: just, it's a beautiful yeah,
2: car. It is,
1: yeah. Um, <clears throat> so my dad's talking to Dave, and he's like, you know, how many cars can you work on? And it was a very limited amount. I don't remember, but it was like, you know, I'm, it takes a couple of years to do these cars and I can only work on like three or four at a time. And my dad was like, you ever think about hiring some more guys? Because Dave had like one guy who did some work for him, um, you know, full time, but mm-hmm. like did the stuff that Dave didn't want to do. And Dave did the other stuff. And, you know, so it's a limited amount of stuff he can do. I was like, you ever think of hiring some other guys? And Dave was like, you know, I've done that. And what ends up happening is instead of building hot rods, I'm like managing these other people who are building the hot rods. Mm -hmm. They get to build the hot rods Mm
2: -hmm. and I'm
1: managing them. And I want to build hot rods. So it's like, I can't build hot rods and manage, like, you know, and manage people. I I either build the hot rods or I manage the people who build the hot rods. And like, that's, that's kind of,
0: That's a very good point. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I just want to make, I just want to make music and I, it, my, I get to make my own music and I get to play guitar. I'm doing a lot of solo gigs these days, which is really fun. And I just play me and a guitar. I just do. And it's the same idea. You know, I could make like a bigger show with, you know, other musicians, but then I'm like sort of in this whole thing of like, organizing, getting all these people and their equipment around. And I'm already in a great band. I'm in the Spin Doctors. I'm in a fantastic band. So if I'm going to go off and do stuff by myself, you know, I've always been really fascinated to get back to the beginning of our conversation. I've always been really fascinated by like just the form of a person playing, Mm -hmm. um, playing, you know, getting the, the practice of one person yeah. getting a song across with an instrument is deeply fascinating to me. And I think audiences really appreciate yeah. seeing a song broken down to the point of just one person playing it on an instrument, because then you really get to see like, you know, is this song, like, is this a great song or is it like a gimmicky production? Yeah. You know? Cause a lot of songs these days have a lot of production and underneath it, it's just sort of like, the same couple of lines being repeated over and over again. And there's a lot of razzle dazzle and you know, machines making like really cool things happen that are very exciting for your ear. But if you were just to like pick up a guitar and try and play it or just a piano and play and try and play that song, it would be like, wow, this is a pretty mm-hmm. shitty song. Right. Right. You know, and that's, mm. that's kind of like, you know, with my solo thing right now, I, I think this record has like a, just a great little group of songs On it they all really come off well just me and a guitar playing it people haven't heard my record the record is like a full production there's yeah um, some songs that are that are pretty broken down um, to um, you know there's a song called the world accordion to Garp it's like (laughs) guitar accordion and tuba you know it's just like three instruments like Elvis I've left the
3: building Boosie Susie on my arm I'm off to make a killing The sweet life's lost its charm I know that high above me There's an order in the sky Play for the pearly gate man He'll show you where they keep the pie Teasing angels blazing on the French horn and the harp And the world accordion to garb La 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 la
1: There are other songs that have like a full rock and roll production on them with like horns and piano and, you know, drums and bass. Um, but they all, you know, I play them all. When I play live, I just play me and a guitar, which, you know, I think is kind of fun for people to like just hear these songs completely broken down, sure. as, I, as I said before. So, you know. Interesting. Um, Good. Believe me, if somebody wanted to come along and give me a lot of money, I wouldn't be like, no, I love money. <laughs> right. I love money, but I don't, but I hate bullshit. Right. You know? Yeah. And I hate doing shit that I think is bullshit. So I'm just going to keep doing, you know, I love the Spin Doctors. I love my guys. Um, we play just really beautifully together. I'm so proud that we've been together for 30 years. That's amazing. Because it really hasn't been easy. There have been, like, serious axes to grind and, um, you know, huge, huge fights and disagreements in the band, and mm-hmm. um, you know we've made a lot of money and we've lost a lot of money, and we've been, you know, um, grinding it out with like nothing to show for it, and then had huge success, which is just as perilous as grinding it out, and then yeah. and then going back and and um and like um you know not being as successful, but sticking together because the music is so great and now we make a you know we all make like a very comfortable very decent living Good. like going out and doing like the shows that we do every year and you know we're going to go back into the studio um this winter and cut a couple songs and see what happens um you know maybe we'll make a full record maybe we'll cut a couple songs maybe we'll just write a few things i'm not you know there's no like super strong sure. like uh regimented uh, idea of what we're going to do but it'll be fun and um you know just going to keep Good. making records and, and I'm very lucky, you know, yeah. people always ask me, you get tired of playing two princes. And, um, you mentioned two princes, there's people
0: who never want to sure. hear it again.
1: And there's people for whom it's their favorite. Absolutely. Song ever. It and is. there are people who like, are like, I met my wife, you know, mm-hmm. that song, there are people who are like, I broke my leg in, you know, 12 places. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> You know, I would wake up in the morning and it took me like two years to recuperate. And I would put on like pocket full of kryptonite. And yeah. that record just got me through a very, very dark, dark time. And that's a real story. Somebody was like, I might have killed myself if it hadn't been Jeez. for that
2: record.
0: That's incredible. And so,
1: you know, yeah. And so I'm just lucky. I, I can see myself, you know, some people would be like, some people would be like, uh, well, you know, you made a big record and you had a couple of hits and then, you know, your career kind of trailed off um, from there. And you've never been as successful as you were, you know, in 1994 or 93. Mm-hmm. And um, it really depends on how you define success. Right. And I am not, I don't know, I'm competitive. I'm ambitious. But like success is one of those like funny words it's very hard to put your finger on I mean do do I drink like you know expensive mm-hmm. whiskey and go out to dinner <laughs> when I want to and like right. you know do I have a Subaru yeah <laughs> I got a brand new <laughs> right. Subaru that I lease uh-huh. you know my kid is like my kid is fabulous the wife is fabulous um, you know come out and see me I play guitar pretty good right. come out and see the spin doctors we kick fucking ass. And, you know, don't worry about me. I'm having a ball.
0: Good. That's great, man. That is great. That's exactly uh, the perfect ending to this story. So uh, (laughs) let me ask you, I, we, we normally, you know, we're going to insert songs that we talk about on here so people can get a context of what we're talking about, like the world accordion to go and stuff like that. Um, As a closeout song, give me an idea. Tell us what song we should play That I know no one likes to answer that favorite question, but tell me one that you're particularly proud of or you wish people knew more. If you leave it up to me, I'll probably play something off Nice Talking To Me because I think that's a really great album. But what, you know, in Chris Barron's world, what's that song that you would just, you'd love for people to hear again?
1: Shit. Like you want to nod off of Pocket Full of Kryptonite or... Uh, I
0: don't care. Whatever it is. and I, Even off one of your solo albums. Give us a song. We're going to play it here at the end. Give me a song that you wish... Pe- that you're really proud of. That you wish more people knew about. that Of yours. Or Spin Doctors or whatever.
1: You know, either the first or second record uh, song off of my solo record is hmm. are pretty cool. Angels and One-Arm Jugglers or uh, April and May. I think I think one of the things about the Spin is like we were as dark as any of the grunge bands. Mm-hmm. You look at a you look at a song like Shinbone Alley or Refrigerator Car. It's as dark as any Nirvana song or any like um, Soundgarden tune. We always kind of got this kind of lightweight rap because the songs that people knew by us are Little Miss Can't Be Wrong and Two Princes. But even like if you look at the lyrics of Little Miss Can't Be Wrong or Two Princes, like those are, those are sad lyrics with yeah. happy music. Yeah, They're yeah. dark lyrics with happy music. Mm-hmm. Um, Little Miss Can't Be Wrong, people think it's about my ex-wife or my ex-girlfriend. It's about my dad's ex-wife. Mm. who used to, like, kick kick down my door in the middle of the night and scream at me wow. until, like, the veins were popping out of her forehead. You know, with cold cream on her face yeah. and, like, a terrycloth robe <laughs> and, her, and her hair out to here. Right. So, like, I, I had a dark childhood. I went to, you know, when I was eight, I moved to Australia I left all my friends behind and ended up at, like, you know, an English-style, you know, private school where they used mm. to, like, chain us, you know, they would like hit us with sticks. Oh. Like, you know, I, those grunge guys got nothing on me. Like I've got as dark a past <laughs> as any of those guys, but you know, the big difference between the spin doctors, um, and you can put this in the podcast, you know, you can glue mm-hmm. this like the big difference yeah. between us and those guys was like, we're not nihilists, mm. you know, we're optimists. Yeah. And, and I always felt like artistically you, a philosophy or a work of art that doesn't offer people a way out or a way up isn't really very useful. Mm-hmm. And um, we always prided ourselves, like going back to another one of your questions, we always prided ourselves on having songs that, uh, you know, we've been put out a record and the record was varied in tone. You know, there are mm-hmm. different rhythms, sure. different harmonic, uh, landscapes, and different moods, and um, so we weren't like a one-mood band, but we had dark tunes and light tunes, and, um, you know, it's easy, philosophically speaking, it, isn't, it doesn't take a genius to look at the world and see that it's patently unfair, and that it's full of, like, suffering and cruelty. You know, people talk about like, what is art? What is music? You know, I don't know what art is, but I'm pretty certain it has something to do with, you know, when you look around and you see that the world is corrupt, that your leaders are corrupt, and that um, life is patently unfair, why should you get up in the morning and be a good person? Yeah, and the people who are like running things aren't good people. Why should you be a good person when you're surrounded by like evil and corruption? And you know, we've never explicitly like answered those big questions in our music, but I've always felt like, it was our job to, in some sense, tonally, you know, shed light on those kinds of questions, and um, um, and that's kind of good. What we've always yeah been about. So you know, we've got we've got we've our shit is just as dark as anybody else, forty or fifty. Um and uh, and like I said, you know, refrigerator car, uh, shinbone alley. Yeah, those tunes are those tunes were as dark as anything those grunge guys ever did. But we also had, but we had light too.
0: Yeah. Well, you're good at both and we'll close it out on one of those songs. And, uh, I just, I'm really grateful that you talked to me. I've been doing this for about three and a half years and you've been somebody that I've been wanting to speak to all along. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm really glad we finally were able to do this. And, um, it's been really fun going back and, re-listening to those Spin Doctor albums. It had been a little while for me, but getting ready to talk to you, I wanted to make sure that it was all fresh and it was a really satisfying experience. And so thanks for being you, Chris, and thanks for talking to me. Thanks,
1: John. I appreciate it.
0: There you have it, Chris Barron. Wasn't he great? So normal, you know, and nice and self-effacing. I've wanted to talk to him for years, so I'm so glad we finally got this worked out. Thank you, Chris, for doing that. And everybody, November 8th, at the Brooklyn Bowl, the 30th anniversary show of, Spin Do- of the Spin Doctors. If you're in the area or can make it or want to make it, those are the details. You can also obviously go on spindoctors.com to, to go even deeper. And as I mentioned last year, Chris Barron put out a solo album, Angels and one arm Jugglers. Check that out as well. And a th- special thanks also to Wendy Jones for helping set this up. Wendy's always great with guests. I wanted to, he listed so many songs to close it out with, but I figured let's go with Refrigerator Car. So that's what we're listening to now, all right? Now, next week, I'm not 100% sure uh, what I'm going to do next week in terms of guests. I have so many backlogged right now I'm trying to pick through. Uh, I think we're going to go with a a pretty timely one. I interviewed uh, just last week, actually, a member of a band that was huge in the 80s. Early 80s, specifically, a very MTV band that have been broken up for many years, but they just, they're in the news because they just announced that they are reforming in 2019, going on tour and putting out a new album. So that's kind of exciting. So I think that's what we're going to do next week, okay? Uh, huge thanks as always to Yan the Man, my right-hand man, for putting everything together. And you guys know the drill. You can find us on Facebook. You can like our page and send us a message. You can please go in. If this is your first time, go to the archive, See if there's any other guests out there that we've done that you'd like. I, I have a feeling you would. You will enjoy a few of these. Um, also, you can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at The hustlepod. We will be back next Tuesday. Thanks, everybody.